And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? It's time to give the people a clock, and we've shown up on the dot. Let's do it. <laughs> we always show up, or try to always show up. That's what, that's what we do on this podcast, is we show up to give the people what they want. And you know, we've got a fascinating topic today. Polarized training versus moderate intensity training, when, where, and why for each. And I'm excited about this because I think this is one of our more misunderstood topics in modern coaching and something that, you know, I see yelled at all the time on social media. But before we get there, you know why people yell at you know, ah, we need to polarize. No, we need threshold and double threshold and modern intrinsic training. You know why that we get these kind of polarizations, this disparity online? Why is that, Stephen? Educate me. Because we don't look and reflect on history. Mm. Amen to that. Because if we reflected on our history of training and how we got to these points, we would realize and see the ebbs and flows of training and then also see, oh, this is why we swung too far on that pendulum because we had this period where we overemphasized this. Mm -hmm. For instance, the 1990s doldrum in U.S. distance running was too far towards like, hey, we're just going to only do VO2 max and focus on this. So what did we do that? In John and I's era, we said, forget about this. Let's run like really long, put in some more miles. And all you're doing is swinging back and forth between these things and often overshooting things. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's it's like a grand experiment, right? (laughs) Except it is. Except we're not all coming together at the same location and debriefing our uh, results, right? And seeing if our hypothesis uh, lived up to actually what happened. But luckily, there is a place that now exists where we can have this conversation, where everyone can debrief their results from their experimentations and training. That is exactly it. It's the Running Scholar Program. You can join the clubhouse of, gosh, I don't know how many members now. Over how 500 many? now, big boy. Over 500 yes. members. Yes. Where we just get to you know, shoot the shit on training. And what it does is it, it, it acts as an accelerant for that finding the right spot in the pendulum. No longer is it, hey, I'm going to wait 10 years and see what happens like we used to have to do to, to find oh, I overshot it. I need to go back. We can have these almost, I call it like these mini fast experiments and more data because we get to talk to other coaches who are trying different things and experimenting in in different ways and we get there faster. And not only that, we get the clubhouse, but we also have, gosh, so many over 20 courses, many aimed at history, including our latest, the Igloy course, where we get to go down rabbit holes and understand, oh, this is where flux training originated. This is where the double workout threshold originated. This is how, this is why Lydiard got us into the weekly long run and it made sense back then, but might not make as much sense in a modern paradigm. Like when you understand all of that, you get to have, it's almost like you get to have better experiments. Yeah. And we get my, to the answer. My kettlebell, you, you nailed it, but my kettlebell coach calls it the light bulbs turn on, right? Because we make the connections. And when the light bulbs turn on, we make the connections. We are more confident in what we're doing. We're also more, um, you know, um, excited about what we're doing. And we are also more flexible in what we're doing. Because I think I was talking recently with, uh, Tom Rothenberger, who's the head coach uh, of the Jesuit Cross Country High School program here in Portland. The boys team got second at NXN. Girls team just took 12th at NXN in two, 2020, this past fall. And flexibility is key. He sees in his colleagues, he was commenting like, I see, unfortunately, some of my colleagues like 10 years younger than me who have inflexible paradigms and unwilling to continuously seek out new information and update. And he goes, that's how I've been able to become a better coach is I'm not doing what I'm was doing it from a training standpoint or coaching standpoint 20 years ago. And Tom's been in the game 40 
years. As long as Steve and I has been alive, that man has been coaching. So sitting down with him for several hours and conversing was really special. Um, you know, I've actually we're gonna post it in the clubhouse in the form of both a, a little mini podcast, uh, monologue podcast. I also, we'll type it up in the chat. So you get to see these things in real time, like going out and seeing what other people are doing in the field. And exciting news, friends, he didn't know it, and I gave him the language behind it, but he was applying flux training principles to his Jesuit high school cross country and tracking team. And that's one of the things he credits with why they become so successful. So if you want to see other people applying what we're talking about in the field with success, this is the place to do it. That's right. Sign up for the scholar program. It will change your coaching life. So let's let's get let's get to it. Polarized training versus martyred intensity training. And I'm going to start with just defining these briefly for us. So polarized training is popularly thought of as well. It was popularized by uh, Steven Seiler, you know, the the very good sports scientist who essentially looked around and said, "Hey, um, I think you know." we have this a little bit wrong. And he said, hey, most of our training should be easy or relatively hard. So his kind of modern, you know, conceptualization was, can be summarized by like the 80-20 rule, right? 80% low intensity, 20% relatively high intensity. Again, we're talking broad generalities. There's nuance there. The moderate intensity method could be more, you know, um, could be summarized by looking at the kind of lactate threshold model. So it's that Norwegian model we talked about where there's this heavy emphasis on that middle zone, which, yes, we're doing low and high intensity work, but that middle zone of lactate threshold plus or minus is where we need to accumulate a ton of volume. So instead of that 80-20, again, I don't know, percentages, depending on the athlete, but it might be something like, I don't know, 50, you know, 40-10 or something like that, where there's a much more in that middle zone of like, hey, we need to do a lot of lactate threshold, accumulate as much as possible, and that's our bang for our buck. Yeah, it's... So tough, too, because it's become kind of dogmatic in that now it's like, hey, I'm in this camp or I'm in this camp or this is the way or this gets the most bang for your buck. Right. And, you know, Steve and I always encourage you, like, don't fall for the media sensationalism that's out there where they're trying to make this pigeon held and dogmatic to get clicks, to get views, to get this and get that, because there's definitely nuance and like everything. It needs to be another tool in the coach's toolbox to know when and where and why and with what athletes to apply these different um, periodization and intensity models to their benefit. And I think I think the, the important thing here is, you know, I talked about history in the Running Scholar Program. Let's bring some history in here. The polarized model, okay, it came kind of like codified and, and named in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, you know, 2005 to 2010 or ish mm -hmm. uh, is when Steven Seiler, I remember this clearly back on his old school site that he that's still around. You can go see it, but it it's a sportsci.org. Oh, yeah, that I love. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's like old school Internet, just like lots of you know, writing and some graphs, but like nothing fancy, no, nothing fancy. It's a lot of white, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, white, a lot of white and black. Yes. White and black. <laughs> like, and I, I love it though. But if you go back in there, you start to see the formulate formalization of, um, Siler's work. And it starts with evaluating kind of, a especially in the uh, Nordic like cross-country skiing events and all that stuff and classifying based on a three-zone model um, how much time they were spending in each, each side. And what he kind of realized quickly is that they were doing a hell of a lot of easy stuff, a little bit of moderate, and a little bit more of like this intense. So Again, we simplify it to the 80-20, but the reality is it was probably like, I don't know, I'm pulling numbers out, but something like, you know, 75, 
um, five and 15 or whatever it is, or something like that, where it's like you had a, a lot of easy, a little bit of middle and more so um, on the hard side of your kind of or intense side of your hard workouts. And the important thing on the history, and this is where I get, is this was, again, early 2000s to mid 2000s. This was in response to the paradigm at that time, John, which coming out of the 90s was lots of in of VO2 max work and not much easy work. Right, you I call it, I call it rock and roll running. Like it's yeah. a, it was just rock and roll. We're rocking and we're rolling today. Let's go, baby. <laughs> it, it was it was like you know in the popularization. If you want to understand this, is you would go back and read uh, Peter Coe's Better Training for Distance Runners, which you know in the thing I remember this very clearly. The thing to try to do at that point was everyone was like, oh, you know, Seb Coe runs all his all his. It ran all his miles at six minute pace or faster. So even your quote unquote, like easy days were pretty dang hard. Yeah. Right. In that model. And that's where Siler's like real kind of like pullback of that pendulum came from is he said, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need a lot of accumulation of like easy stuff. Not so much like just like rocking and rolling all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's also, we have to remember with Seb Coe's model, right? It's, and even Igloy or Bob Shul or what have you, right? It's about what was documented because Seb Coe had a lot of quote unquote easy restorative running, even Lydiard, right? Had a lot of jogging in the program, but it was not necessarily documented and put forth. And we've gone back and scoured the history books and interpretations, talked to, you know, former athletes who are under that system, who had direct contact with these coaches, um, you know, people who learned at clinics from these coaches when they went on speaking tours, uh, what have you, right? Because it's losing that little nuance where like, well, they didn't consider that quote unquote training and they didn't consider it load. And, you know, I've tweeted this before, like if it's easy, it's not really counting as training because that's what was going on is these coaches where it's like saying, oh no, yeah, that jogging that we're doing, that extra 40 miles, 50 miles a week of jogging, we don't even count that. That's not something we count as training. Today with Strava and everything, like if you move, right, your app counts it, it, it matters. <laughs> so it's interesting to uh, you know juxtapose our you know, kind of more uh, meticulous tracking of movement versus their much more liberal, much more loosey goosey tracking. Yes, that's a that's a great point, and that's always the the Sebco argument, and even the Lydiard. Remember, it was like, oh yeah, the the easy shakeout jogs in the morning. We just don't we just don't count them. We don't we just forget about those, um, just because it's like a different mindset of like what is the stress and stimulus. So I think that's really important here. And then the other thing, and we went, the, we, if you want an understanding of the lactate threshold model, we outlined that in our episode not too long ago on the Norwegian model of training and how it came through Marius Backen and others. Um, but again, what was that? That was a different response, but similarly to the like VO2 max response of the 90s that Marius Backen kind of grew up in, right? And then he realized, along with his coach and sports scientists, it's like, hey, maybe we can get some more bang for our buck if we do this lactate threshold. So it was still, it was a similar but different response to the training period of the time where they shifted the emphasis to try and get things more in aligned with um, what they thought was, was beneficial, which brings us to today where we have these almost two competing ideas that came out of really, you know, countering the kind of nineties rock and roll and they did so in different manners and they both work. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing we got to remember is we can't handcuff ourselves to a certain paradigm. You know, Steve and I have examined, experimented and applied with good success all these elements in training at different time, either on ourselves and or athletes we worked with. So 
they all work. And at the end of the day, you know, we have to figure out why they all work. And honestly, it's about frequency. If there's one thing, you know, and we're looking at the science to say mitochondria here and mitochondrial biogenesis, we've talked a lot about lately because we now have really, really good science on this to understand it. One of the when the consistent red threads that it respond that mitochondrial biogenesis responds to, which is that quote unquote aerobic ad- adaptation, is frequency. Whether it's frequency of intensity, frequency of volume, if you're very frequent with multiple bouts over the course of, you know, a day, multiple days in a row, you're gonna get fitter. And everyone just empirically knows this, right? So that's why two easy shakeout runs and a hard workout, like the Kenyan style or even the Lydiard style in one day works. Or that's why, you know, in, you know, Henry Rono's status where you're going steady for 10 miles in the morning and then coming back and doing 15 times a quarter on short rest. That's why that works. Like, and he's doing that, that, that same training every day, right? So they both work in that regard. What matters though is what doesn't break you down and run you down or your athletes down. That's the key in coaching. We gotta figure out what I call the bounce back ability. How rapidly can people bounce back from the embarrassment, as Steve says in the science of running, on the physiological system as well as the structural um, mechanical system? What's that bounce back ability? And everyone has a different bounce back ability or as the Russians called adaptive reserve because of everything going on outside of training. <laughs> and that's where the sensitivity of coaching, you know, your athletes really, really matters. It, it really does. And I think that's where we get kind of the, you know, stepping back a little bit. I think what we, we have is kind of the wrong idea often in training is that there's one magical optimal zone or optimal training style. And what that does is it limits us because we don't take into consideration the, that bounce back uh, ability or adaptive reserve, which varies for every individual. So the way I like to think about it is it's best not to plant your flag in a camp and say, oh, I'm a polarized training person or I'm a lactate threshold or moderate training or Norwegian model of training because you never know what sort of tool you're going to need for the athlete you have. And you're never going to know what tool you're going to need at different points in their career, which I think is so often neglected and and forgotten about. Um, Because too often what we do is we look at the, you know, the elite athlete and say, oh, look at their training balance. We're going to copy this for college athletes, high school athletes, recreational athletes, and not realize that they're they're at different points or possibly adapt in different ways to different stimuli. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's being also comfortable with exploiting the principles and the general direction of enhancement you want for that athlete or that group of athletes at that time using different paradigms. So, if you're not comfortable with it, right? If you're inflexible or you're not exposed to it or up to date on it, or you haven't experimented in some capacity, whether on yourself or with athletes who are open to experimentation, then of course you're not going to be able to implement and exploit it, right? And that's where, again, we use cues of history or like say in the scholar program right now, it's spring and I always run my inside a high school season um, thread where I document every single day of training using a flux model flux paradigm for the high school athlete population i work with and again it's not because like this is the only way but this is the biggest bang for my buck given the constraints of the environment i work in right like it's a a liberal arts private high school where the kids got a lot on their plate you know there's a lot of academic pull there's a lot of uh, multiple activities they are in the play. They're doing robotics club. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to see that. I can't ask them to be, to meet on the weekend for a long run. Can't ask them, you know, to do this and that. So what do I do given only have really five days a week of training with two days off on the weekend? Well, 
I'm going to run Flux. I'm going to run a Flux dominant program because I know over the course of 12 weeks, that's going to get the biggest bang for our buck. And we're going to focus on technique. We're going to focus on sprinting. We're going to focus on the 100 meter drill, the 200 meter drill, the 400 meter drill. And in real time, you get to see how this experiment runs out because I'm pretty transparent with it. You can ask questions, this or that. And then from there, you can have more encouragement to give it uh, experimentation of yourself versus if we only think that a long run's the only way to develop mitochondria or get aerobically fit through endurance, we do handcuff ourselves somewhat to be able to be versatile and flexible when our coaching circumstance uh, evolves or changes. Yeah, it really is that that adaptability. So let's let's maybe dive into when and how to use each because yeah. <laughs> you know you said beforehand and i love this it's not an either or it's an and and when <laughs> and, and i think I, I think that i think this is such an important pot point and and you know maybe the main topic or the main takeaway for listeners is like you need to be able to understand okay what these two models are we understand that right we've gone over that and then understand, okay, when should I utilize them? So I'd, I'd love to hear first, John, when? Yeah. Well, I think of it like this, right? You know, I think of polarized training as pure, hard, easy. And let's just go on a zero to 10 scale, right? So polarized training would be tens and twos. You're going to have like nine and 10 high-end workouts. And then you're going to, you know, in bouts of stress and stimuli. And then you're going to couple and complement that immediately following with twos, right? Very, very low, very, very light and fluffy, super light and fluffy. So it's that 10 and two model versus moderate intensity training, or maybe more of a flux style training where you're doing multiple bouts within a day or back to back concurrently is going to be more like eight and four, right? It's, it's, you know, hard and then less hard or stressful and then less stressful. But the bal it's about balance, right? Because if you add the numbers up, eight plus four, 10 and two, both equals 12, right? On a um, intensity scale using a very simplified streamlined model like that. The key though, right? The key is this, and that's where I always start. How well is your athlete sleeping? I found from a bounce back ability to recoverability standpoint, sleep is the first indicator of disturbance or under recovery, which can evolve into overtraining and also lack of adaptation, right? And it, it kind of goes for everything, like from a hydration standpoint, from a nutrition standpoint, from a global stress standpoint. If those things are off and out of that athlete's normal, they're going to have really high sleep disturbance. And that's one thing I've found over time is... When an athlete, whether it's a high school athlete, college athlete, professional athlete, or master's athlete, when they're in a pattern of poor sleep or high sleep disturbance, whether from travel, general stress, or they're waking up a lot at night, or they can't get to sleep soundly very rapidly, something's off, right? And that's why it's like, I've had conversations with the high school kids like, oh, you're having poor sleep. Yeah, I just like, I'm just, I can't fall asleep till like two in the morning. I mean, I'm in bed at like, you know, 10 or 10.30. I go, okay, uh, you know, what are you eating? What are you drinking? Well, you know, I always have a, a cup of coffee right before practice or a Red Bull before practice. So I'm ready to go. I go, dude, that caffeine's in your system. That half-life's at least six hours, man. No wonder. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's take the red bull out please like let's like have not no caffeine you know after after you know before noon is like your caffeine cutoff time right so or like a college athlete be like oh yeah you know i just i have really poor sleep or whatever or uh, you know i'm getting to bed on time but i just feel awful and i go all right are you consuming alcohol late at night and it's like well yeah just once a week no big deal well we know alcohol inhibits sleep, right? You'll pass out, but that's not sleep. And so now you create this deficit and this debt that it's going to take multiple days to catch up from because you thought it was no big deal to have two beers, you know, when watching the final four game, you know, at nine o'clock at night. So it's education on that component. If the sleep's off, then directs how I'm going to, um, you know, train with that athlete for the time being until they get that under control. So when we have that type of scenario, it is definitely polarized tens and twos, or maybe even less severe polarization where it's like, you know, sevens and eights and ones and twos, right? Because they need to get 
stability and consistency in that area on point before we can go for the more moderate kind of consistent flux type work. Because without that kind of, you know, life stability or recovery or sleep stability, then you're going to have very a lot of difficulty managing the more moderate intensity type load versus when you're really stable at that in life and like this person sleeps like a rock, nutrition's on point, hydration's on point, that's just how they operate. I think it's much more appropriate and effective to then go with kind of that, um, you know, double lactate or moderate consistent intensity training because their recoverability globally is just much higher. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think I the way I look at it is it's almost like if you think of high school kids, right? And if they don't have a good foundation or what have you, often the simplest thing to do um, is to use the polarized model because it allows you to do a lot of slow stuff and easy stuff, which builds that foundation. And then like get relatively fast by dabbling in some of that harder, harder work. Um, the way I like to think of this is, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the content of mitochondria versus the function. Often the 80-20, especially for novice athletes or that polarized model, that does a good job of giving us kind of a foundation of content. Because like, you're not exposed to much easy running. So if you just get some volume of easy running and time on your feet, your muscles are going to adapt. You're going to get some good mitochondria content. You spice it in with a little bit of intense interval work. You'll get that opposite side of, of increasing content through, um, through uh, the, the high-intensity interval training uh, paradigm. And it gives you like a decent foundation. I think the, the kind of moderate intensity threshold model, what that does really is takes those content, elevates their function, right? And the way I look at it is if you need to move from aerobic foundation to what I'd call high-end aerobic development, that's where you move to that kind of flux, middle, double threshold, et cetera. Because now you're really, the stimulus is saying, hey, we've got a lot of mitochondria here. We know how to work decently well on our like general aerobic ability. Um, we're no longer out of breath when we're just going for an easy run or whatever. We can handle that. And now you're you're pressing those bounds a little bit with that high-end aerobic development and that threshold development. And the reason, I, I will say, the reason often like you have to be careful with this with people who don't have that kind of a content foundation is if you jump straight into that high-end aerobic development, it's really easy to push over the edge. And you talk about it in terms of sleep and recoverability. Um, I also like to think of it as like, if you don't have an athlete who knows how to kind of modulate their intensity well, it's really easy for them to make everything, everything instead of, we'll say that eight and four, everything a six or seven. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there becomes like no variation. And we've all experienced that with, you know, if you've ever coached high school kids, you've all experienced that where you have the kid whose hard workouts are essentially the same as their like quote unquote steady runs. And you're just like, which are also often the same as their races. And you're just like, dude, yeah. Like we gotta, we gotta change something here. Yeah. It's, and I think that's the, like the mono pace, mono intensity. That's really what we are saying. Like, yes, running the moderate, you know, or flux style, you know, hard, less hard, or a little harder, a little less harder um, paradigm is, a lot more um, sophisticated and takes more sensitivity and nuance because it's still a pendulum, but it's a much more shallower um, oscillation of the pendulum versus the polarized model or classic hard, easy model. Pure one is way bigger pendulum. So it's much easier to track. You need less sensitivity, right? And like I prefer, my default tends to be working with athletes is the reverse linear periodization model where we do ex the inverse of what Steve just talked about. You start off with relatively higher intensity and lower global volume. And then as the athlete gets fitter and adapts and mitochondria 
um, we build a first mitochondria function and then build content. So it's a, you know, it's like, which one works? Well, they both work, right? Would you rather have a lot of something that don't work so well or very few of something that works really well and then extend or build out from there? Either paradigm works, right? It's just, there is different um, trade-offs involved in each, right? When you do a, a polarized model with a lot of volume, if your running mechanics aren't sound, right? Well, then that's the road to really rapid injury development or overuse injury, shin splints, pulled calves, plantar fasciitis, you name it, right? IT man issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because you're just putting a lot of steps on the athlete. Now, if you are adopting more of this reverse linear periodization model, starting off with high intensity, well, yeah, then physiologically, metabolically, they could be really wound up for a long time or go over the edge if they don't have the requisite kind of like buffering or clearance period to get all that out of their system. So it's hard because having ran a reverse linear periodization model now at the high school level for going on three years, I'm always doing less and less volume in the beginning of the season just to hedge my bets, running volume, I should say, just to hedge my bets um, so that the intensity is not too intense because we're going back-to-back days of speed and speed endurance, then a, a middle day day off, then a, you know, then a day of uh, aerobic um, endurance, and then, aerob- and then longer aerobic development work, right? So that's how I kind of stack it. But what I do early on the season now is I incorporate different circuits. So medicine ball circuits, plyometric circuits, even iron cardio, if I have that available. I incorporate that as a way to work the physiological system and get that up to speed without having as much um, insult and embarrassment on the mechanical system as we're also uh, co-developing that out. So it's this hybrid, right? And will they continue to do like the circuits throughout the season? Of course. But as we go throughout the season, we will elevate the amount of volume of flux work that we're doing on a daily basis because they're getting stronger because they're getting more fit, because they've built high mitochondrial function and now are also concurrently building out the content. So either works, but you just got to know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the old like Igloy built up endurance through lots of what we'll call flux. Um, Well, Lydia did it through a different manner. Um, Both kind of target that adaptation just slightly different. And I think what we're getting at, and I think what is important here is like knowing when to pull that tool out of the toolbox. And, you know, one of the things I always thought is, is, or one of the things I always looked at it is I, I call it the like kink in the pipe, you know, um, model, which is as we adapt to think things our kink in our pipe of like our ability or our aerobic ability or whatever to flow, to get to a performance shifts. So if we do lots, if I take you away and I say, hey, do six months of just straight, easy running, my general aerobic pipe has widened so much, there's no kink there. Like it's flowing. But somewhere downstream is it narrows and there's going to be like this kink where it's like, oh, we've got all this pressure built up and this is our performance limiter, right? And what we have to do is essentially as our adaptations and our athletes change and grow and all that stuff, where we attack that, that, that training adaptation shifts based on where the kink in the pipe is. And I think that's where I look at this kind of threshold moderate intensity model is often when the kink in the pipe shifts from like a general aerobic ability to again, what I call high-end aerobic ability. And the way I like to think about this is is pretty simple from a workout standpoint, is you might be listening and say, okay, Steve, we get it, but that sounds really complicated. All you have to do is compare either races or workouts across a spectrum, right? So if we stick someone in a four by four, how do they do, right? If we stick someone in a 1500, like how does that compare to their 400 or 800? If we have someone do a, four mile tempo run or a eight mile tempo run like how does that generally compare to their prs where is their strength or weakness on this 
if we stick someone in a in a and we say hey do a four mile tempo run or i do four by mile with 90 seconds jog what one are they better at or able to handle better and all of that gives you information on where that kink in the pipe is so for instance on that when do i start using more of a kind of modern intensity threshold model is when they're generally pretty good at their aerobic stuff right they can run a long ways their long run isn't like difficult they breathe pretty good at easy to to kind of like steady paces but then you look at their threshold or their tempos or their like, you know, high end aerobic development. And it's not as good as you would think based on their kind of whatever mile 5K time and their long run, you know, general aerobic ability. And that's that's always the signal where it's like, oh, OK, we've got this middle area that this is the this is the trap, the stopping point, And mm-hmm. we need to develop it. Yeah. And I also too, it's, we, it's funny because it's also very polarized. Either we advance too quickly stimuli and um, inputs, or we stagnate for too long. And what I mean by that is typically, right, the paradigm in when we do workouts is you want to, people have this concept that I should be seeing faster times in workouts, you know, in very short intervals, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, however often you do a workout, right? Like we should be in some measurable form of improvement that we tend to look at is either increase in pace or increase of duration of pace. However, we also tend to stagnate versus like this idea of like, all right, we're going to do three months of base building, easy running in the off season for cross country. And we're just going to keep it there for three months because that's what you got to do, right? So again, that's a little bit too, um, you know, in general polarized thinking uh, that might not be what's actually happening in the real world. So I looked to like the uh, work in David Bishop's um, lab out of Australia, who's done a lot of stuff. And I've cited before on mitochondrial development, specifically with endurance-based athletes. And what they find is after, if you just do um, unilateral loading, so the same loading, same volume, same intensity, you don't change anything up. Let's just say, for example, it's six by a mile at your 15K pace with 90 seconds rest. Do the same work and same workout. Don't change any variable. Same, same, same. And that's kind of the Bonder Chuck paradigm we've talked about before stable gain, sports form development. After the sixth session, PG1 Alpha the, you know, quote unquote, master switch for mitochondrial biogenesis starts to plateau, starts to accommodate. The stimulus is not as great. And it's around six, right? And it's interesting when you look at Bonderchuk's periodization model, what he did, right, is he just said, okay, with these throwing athletes, we're going to do the same load every day, twice a day, same weight, same exercise, same lift, Um, if they're doing general strength, right, whether it's a snatch or a clean, he never changed any of the variables because to him, right, the exercise was the variable. And the exercise we know from a brain standpoint is a different exercise if I'm snatching or cleaning, you know, 60 kilos versus 65 kilos. It's actually interpreted as different. So now it's kind of cool that we actually have science here that shows like it takes six sessions for accommodation to set in. And by the 12th session, it is total accommodation and plateau. But what happens, right, is we often say, all right, we're going to do six by a mile at this pace with this recovery. And then next time we're going to change some part of the stimulus. Okay, now we're going to do seven by a mile or we're going to do six by a mile with 60 seconds recovery or we're going to do the miles faster. And it's like, no, no, no. For a block, a small block of time, just keep it all the same until you've fully exploited that stimuli or that embarrassment or that insult, and then do the changeover, whether it's changing the volume of the workout, changing the recovery interval of the workout, or changing the pace of the workout. And that's what I mean. It's we have to think more nuanced because the science on it's pretty clear and pretty interesting. Um, and I never personally, without reading all this literature, would have thought that would have been the way to go. But if we didn't have the example, historical example of the supreme dominance of Anatoly Bonarchuk's athletes <laughs> employing this kind of like block periodization or 
what he calls individual adaptive periodization model or what I call stable gains. I would not, you know, gravitate towards this as much, but it's there and it's there for decades of, <laughs> I mean, he's the best coach of the world ever. Like it's just end of story, you know? I mean, and, but now it's funny cause we know why it worked. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, right? Oh, super, super fascinating. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's all fascinating on how this works. Uh, and you know, the other thing on this is I think we do, I think it's like we get seduced into, the need to see progress, right? So training becomes about proving instead of adapting. So, so the idea is, and, and this is actually in that kind of middle threshold zone, this is probably one of the most dangerous things you could do, um, which is try to run that faster or longer every single time. Because, you know, I think it shows up very clearly in the threshold work because if we tr keep pushing, keep pushing, eventually what we've done is we've changed the stimulus, right? And this is where, you know, this is why when I was coaching high school kids, I realized this problem. And what I quickly did is I said, okay, you know, this was back before everyone had GPS watches. But even then, we went to this park that was very wooded and had all these twists and turns. So even if you wore a GPS watch, it was pretty much useless. Um, and what we did is I said, you know, today you're trying to get in 20 minutes at this effort. You can split it up however you want it. You know, after, if you want to go five, 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 if you want to go 10, five, five, if you want to go 12, eight, like, I don't care. <laughs> But we're trying to run this effort, again, effort, not pace. And I want, and we're just putting that emphasis there. And what that did is it took us out of, oh, we've got a four-mile threshold today. Last time I ran 22 minutes. This time I want to run 21.45 or whatever, whatever have you. And instead, I'm not saying, hey, never do anything measured. But what you want to do and often this is what we would do is we had this, again, this five mile loop is we might run that five mile loop as our threshold or our, our tempo or what have you. But then we would go away from it and not run that five mile loop hard, like threshold, whatever hard for a month or a month and a half. Right. Because what you're trying to do is get away from that. So you can, again, get some of those stable adaptations where you're not artificially forcing the pace down to prove that you are fit. Yeah, it's it's mic it's you know it's slow cooking versus microwaving, right? And I feel like we more than ever live in a microwave culture where we want to see instant offense, instant improvement. But that's it. Like if we translate all this into running terms, what would that mean? I would say it'd be let's just use a very simple example here. We're the goal is is like to improve, kind of say that global mitochondrial efficacy, both of content and function, you would want to do something along the lines of, let's just say a four mile tempo. Now the, you know, performance oriented training mindset is saying we want to do the four mile tempo every week and every week we want to go faster. So, you know, whatever, 22 minutes, 21, 30, 21, blah, blah, blah. The, the kind of stabilization model mindset here is saying, we're gonna do a four mile tempo, we're gonna start off at 22, and we're gonna do it at 22 every single time we visit it for a, a block. And the goal is not to ever run faster than say 22 you know, minutes for the four mile tempo. The goal is to make 22 minutes feel freaking so easy, you could do it running backwards. That is adaptation that is stabilization and a lot of people don't like this but that's actually a, what we call the step model imperialization like you see it where it's like it's constant training the idea where it's the same thing over and over and over again right and then there's this big whoop leap to the the next level coming out of that that model because we allowed the gains to get really stable we allowed that an insulting embarrassing event because the first two times you run it your body's gonna be like whoa this is hard uh but then like by the sixth or seventh time your body's gonna be like yep not a big deal uh did i even work out today i don't know i feel like i wasted a workout coach great time to change over time to do something new time to inject a new 
exercise or activity. So that's where, again, we can see the nuance here and use the science to understand there's a lot of value in each. But if you're always, always, always pressing, always, always looking for performance improvements in practice, then yeah, the highly pure, pure polarized model of tens and twos, you're going to gravitate towards that because that's the only sustainable route for that, right? But if you have the sophistication over flux training, double thresholds, and you understand it's not about rocking and rolling every time out the gates, like, you know, we used to do in the 90s. <laughs> and you say, hey, man, it's about it's about management. It's about composure. It's about like, how easy can you make this look? How easy does your body interpret it? And then once it's like so freaking easy, that's the signal. That's the cue rather than like some arbitrary date coach wrote on this periodization calendar. That's the cue for the next changeover or bump up. Then, you know, it's a whole nother world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what it what it's all about is like understanding. Right. Yeah. Under, understanding like, hey, the tools you have at your disposal and not just thinking what we're trying to get people to do on this podcast is to get away from thinking like there's one optimal way or method or methodology to train. And there's not, there's a, there's a variety of different ones that you sometimes need to apply at different periods of time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'll give an example of the inside the, the high school thread, right? My workout exercise training package or my, you know, training means the exercises I use for the whole season, it's very simple and very rudimentary. We have the 100-meter drill, right, which is jog the turn, stride the straights, as the old-timers would call them. We have the 200-meter drill, which is like the Prefontaine 30-40 thing. And then we have the 400-meter drill, which is like the Frank Schorner, Henry Rono, like run fast for one lap and then standing, walking, recovery for razor on razor thin, right? So what are we doing? We do that every week. <laughs> every week we do the 100-meter drill, the 200-meter drill, 400-meter drill. And as long as it's not meet week, it's pretty much on the same day. But in the different blocks of training, right? We just got done with the familiarization block, which is we're just familiarizing ourselves with all these different training means that we're going to be exploiting for the entire season. Now we're in the foundation block where now, okay, now we actually go away from just being only pace or um, effort oriented and effort focused to being what I call pace aware. We're still not studying the pace. We're just being pace aware. Um, we're studying the effort still, but they're going to run all these things at the same, same threshold of intensity and recovery on the reps and intervals. So like, for example, the guys, it's no slower than 78, no faster than 80 for their 400 meter drill on 40 seconds recovery. For ladies, it's no faster than 95, no slower than 92 for their uh, 400 meter drill rep and on 45 seconds recovery. And they do 12 laps throughout the course of a workout. I, right now we're in what I call slice and dice mode where it's like, hey, we can do 12 laps in threes. We can do 12 laps in the first part being fours or fives and then slice and dice always in packages of twos. But we're always trying to hit 12 laps. That's the goal, 12 laps, right? And then over the course of the season, the first line of adaptation is the ability for them to string together more laps without the need for a break. Because they, they auto-regulate, they self-identify, they go, coach, I need to take a, 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 a long, what we, we call the long break. And that's just basically like rest in between sets, right? So they, they auto-regulate their set um, amount. I'll usually anchor and say, hey guys, the first set we're going to go you know, in fours, or the first set's going to be four laps. And then from there, you got to get in 12 and you can slice and dice however you want. Typically what ends up happening though, right? Is they kind of all have positive peer pressure since they're all running the same pace. You know, and I, my, my group's only about eight to 12, um, but uh, they're all running the same pace, all holding themselves accountable. And they're just doing what their friends do, right? But we always get in 12 and this has been now four weeks in a row of, of um, you know, the 400 meter drill, getting 12 laps in at these paces with these recovery intervals. And now what we're starting to see is them auto-regulating going, all right, we're going to go six in a row, four in a row, and like two in a row, which was impossible. Like, like there was no way, like the first time we did, I we did the first, you know, running of the first set three in a row. And it just looked like a bomb dropped. Like they were just, oh, I'm so, uh, you know, and then it was just like, all right, guys, now we'll do two in a row, 
for the rest of the workout, right? And then it started just to creep and that extension started to come in, that endurance started to come in. And when they get to a space where they can do six in a row, two sets of six in a row, right? At the paces all together, that's the change. That's when I change it up. That's when I either make the interval pace faster or where I'll make the recovery, um, excuse me, where I make the rep pace faster or make the recovery interval shorter. But that's where I'm, that's the threshold I'm looking to get to. Love it. I think that's, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It, but it, you look at it and it's just, it looks like you might from a creativity standpoint, right? Because the workout is the same workout every Friday, no matter what Yeah, yeah. in construction, you go, Oh, John's just mailing it in. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm creating consistency, which creates dependability and stability so that we can get there. And you know what the cool thing is, is it works. It really, really works. I mean, it worked last year with my top high school, um, 3k, uh, male and female athlete. Like, you know, the, the guy, he got fourth in the state, um, going in, unfortunately with the top ranked time, but you know, just didn't have the gumption on race day. And the girl won state just running away from step one in driving a hailstorm. I was just like, you know, it was just, it was such a fun memory. I'll always have my whole life. It was like, it was like late May for some reason we had hail at Hayward field. And, you know, she looks at me and she goes, coach, what should I do? I go, Oh, just take it out from step one. Just go. Everyone else is good. Like this is, I go, there's no such thing as a uh, bad weather, only soft people. Right. <laughs> I go, they're all softies, just go. And she nailed it, man. And like the look on her face to being able to have that confidence and ability to go from step one and yeah. just crank. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why we do it. Love it. Love it. So there you go. I think that's a good story to end on is, you know, give yourself, there is no magic solution. There is no magic training paradigm. Give yourself ability to use a variety of them so that you can apply it in the situation that um, where it will benefit the athletes you're working with. And right. Seek out the information and seek out, especially, I cannot tell you time and time again, we always pay for education, whether with this money, time, or experience, what is, you know, it's called experience, which is really just failure. <laughs> and, you know, we give a lot away for free especially on this podcast and we love doing it, but we made the, the, you know, the pay for education platform available because like, honestly, the amount you'll save on books and time finding those books or reading those books and what Steve and I put in the scholar program or just being in the chat in the clubhouse, it's, it's worth its weight in gold of a dollar a day. Cannot, cannot, cannot emphasize that a month. Absolutely. You know, check it out. If you haven't yet, I don't know what you're doing, but <laughs> That's that's where you're going to learn. So check it out. And uh, yeah, until next time, keep coaching, keep experimenting and uh, keep innovating.